Hey guys, welcome to the Fieldcraft's Rowell podcast. I'm your host for this advertising space, and I want to thank our sponsors that make this podcast totally possible. The first sponsor is Sig Sauer. Guys, Sig is an awesome company. I'm a Sig nerd when it comes to their products. I'm a Sig junkie when it comes to training at the Sig Sauer Academy. There's always a Sig project that I want to kind of mess around with. And my current SIG project, in case you're interested, is building up a SIG 220 pistol that I should be able to acquire pretty soon from some department trade-ins a couple towns over from my hometown, put on a threaded barrel for that guy, and then attach that, or I should say attach my SRD 45 suppressor, which is made by SIG, to that pistol. And that will be my dedicated 45 ACP suppressor pistol. So I don't know. Like I said, I'm a nerd. Um, I built up a lot of different things over the years, plugging and playing with the 320 and the 365 and the SIG tread pistol and the MPX, which by the way, the MPX is probably the most fun firearm you will ever shoot uh, just because the trigger is super, super fine, very little recoil. And, you know, people joke and they say that the MPX is the MP5 killer. And I'm not surprised. Uh, guys, Sig Sauer is one of those companies, like I said, they have products, they have training. Please check out the Sig Sauer Academy. There are a lot of good folks that train up there. I've had incredible opportunities to train with Sig. Bullets on vehicles is one of my favorite classes. The three-day introduction to long range or precision scope rifle, that's a great class. The defensive shotgun class is awesome. You know, a lot of people poo-poo the shotgun and the instructors up at Sig, they know how to run a gun. And when you are you know, using the combination of a shotgun and a pistol and, you know, you're getting a chance to work around barriers. And I mean, it's just a fun class playing with the pig. So please check out Sig Sauer. Please check out Sig Sauer Academy. They are solid, solid people, great company, and we're proud to be affiliated with them. There is another company we want to recognize, and that is Vertex. Guys, there is a discount code that I want to alert you to, and that's 20% off using the code Get this, ready? Really original? Fieldcraft. That's F-I-E-L-D-C-R-A-F-T. Fieldcraft will get you 20% off of the Vertex website. And Vertex is a company that we've partnered up with over the, the past couple of years. They've attended a couple of our trade shows. I know a bunch of the guys here have Vertex bags. You know, I've worn Vertex pants for a while. You know, I, I'm more familiar with their apparel than their bags, but I'll tell you that their pants, when I did a... TV pilot show for the History Channel in 2016. I wore a pair of their pants through the desert and 25 miles through all sorts of nasty stuff. Their pants was, I, I put all this like pine resin inside my pant pockets. I still have those pants to this day with that resin in there. Uh, those pants are going on six years now and they're badass. They're great, great for training. So uh, the interesting thing with, with Vertex, in addition to getting 20% off of your order, you can pay attention to their site because maybe, and I'm saying maybe, but I really mean definitely, we'll be launching an updated version of our recce shirt. We had it a generation one recce shirt. It was really, really popular. It's my favorite travel shirt to this day, right? There are buttons on it instead of, or snap buttons instead of just like regular buttons. And it's just a really comfortable shirt. Well, I've seen the prototype of the one that Vertex is doing and it's great. So pay attention, it's coming up. That's going to be the new recce shirt from Vertex. Again, 20% off of their site with the code FIELDCRAFT. And their site is www.vertex, that's V-E-R-T-X.com. All right, guys, here we go. Let's get to this podcast.
Welcome to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. I'm going to be your host for this episode, and I am going to tell you right off the bat that this is going to be a selfish episode in that uh, I really, really love what we're about to talk about. And in the past, I've had selfish episodes before where I've talked about barbecue with Jess Pryles, and I've talked about martial arts with my my Sayak Tuhans, uh, Tuhan Harley Elmar and Tuhan, you know, Tom Kyer. And you know when I geek out over certain things. Well, one of my selfish selfish, selfish loves in this world is a good old fashioned. Now, I'm not a big drinker, right? My college days are over. And I always say that people should drink to remember and not to forget. And I am not going to drink to excess. I in, I do enjoy a good cocktail though. And I recently was, was in Alabama and I had this amazing cocktail with smoked bacon in it, which sounds crazy. It is what it is. Um, but it was just nice to be able to, to celebrate a very good podcast with my friends Jillian and Stacy and Jason. And, you know, we we all just hung out and, you know, we we toasted. And it again, selfish, selfish interest here. So let me say that this podcast is going to get really, really filthy. I'm warning you on this one. But when I mean filthy, I don't mean filthy as in dirty or obscene. I mean filthy as in the brand. Uh, recently, I had student in one of my courses called Bug Out Planning, a very distinguished gentleman. He was there with his son and we just start talking and I'm looking through my email list and I'm, I'm going over, you know, the basic questions that we ask whenever we have a class. And I'm like, okay, where are you from? Why do you want to take this? And I look at the email and it says filthy foods. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. I know that brand. I know it. I've seen it. I've used it. And he's like, oh yeah, you know, it's my company. So we start talking and this gentleman tells me the whole story of his company. And I was like, this is so inspiring. And I need to have the podcast audience hear this. And for those of you that are bourbon drinkers, or maybe you like a good martini, or you know, maybe you enjoy a margarita or a Bloody Mary the morning after, or whatever it may be, this is the podcast for you. So without further ado, I'm going to present to you my good guest, my good friend, Daniel Singer, the CEO and founder of Filthy Foods. And get ready. It's going to get real filthy. Daniel, how are you this morning? Kevin, good morning. How are you? Lovely I am to connect. Oh, I'm doing so great. I uh, <laughs> first first day back in the office after three days in Alabama. Big shout out to all the people of Birmingham, Alabama. You were so incredible. Super, super polite. The Storyteller Network. Oh, they were great down there, too. And I'm loving it. So you are the first thing I wanted to do this morning. Jumping on this podcast with you. I'm energized. Very excited to talk to you. Oh, you too. Thank you so much. Yeah, so let's let's start off with how we met and then we'll kind of walk everyone through our discussion that we had. So you're sitting in the bug out planning class and let's start there. Like why did you take this class called bug out planning? Well, it's such an interesting one. My son, my eldest son Eden had just turned 19 and I was really looking for something for he and I to do. Um there's a lot of girls in my house. There's, we have two daughters, my wife, we have a female dog. So I was like, come on Eden, let's just go away and have a bit of an adventure and uh was very familiar with Fieldcraft Survival with with you particularly and, and and Mike Lover and I just thought this would be wonderful. Let's let's fly out from from Miami and and come to Aberdeen, North Carolina, and, and just sort of plug in and and ultimately try to find gaps in the way that we think and just to try to be better ultimately than we were yesterday. And so saw the course, thought it would be really exciting and and it just far exceeded any expectation that we could have. We had a wonderful two days. So, so thank you again. It was awesome. Yeah, it was th wonderful. Thank you for for being there. That was the first time that we ever ran that class, and you know, everyone had a different reason for wanting to learn 
the planning process, which ultimately that's what that class was all about. It was about that process that would then become transferable to your family. And, you know, between you being down in Florida, that's constantly getting hit with hurricanes. And then the other folks that are up in this area that are near military bases, and they have their own ideas of what could cause them to bug out. And, you know, the, the current threat that's happening in Ohio with the train derailment, everyone's got a reason, you know, and I'm, I'm glad that you, you came by and I'm, it was nice to meet you and your son. And, and, you know, I know he's, in the decision-making process right now of what he's going to do. And I think hopefully we, uh, we excited him a little bit with, you know, our community and, and introducing him to some interesting guys like Brian Edwards and, you know, into Jerry, you know? Oh, very much so. I just think, as I said, it was just such a, such a incredibly interesting course in the way you guys structured it ultimately and guided us through me really as a total novice. And, you know, you think you're somewhat prepared living here in Florida for sort of 18 years and having been through a few hurricanes, but I, I just think you really gave us the structure to to look at it all all the way around, not just from ultimately what do you do when you get that 40, 48 hour warning, but but what are you going to grab? What are you going to take with you? Right. You know, beyond your primary plan, do you have an alternative or a contingency or ultimately an emergency plan? I just think you gave us such an incredible experience. One, wonderful people in the room, everybody very positive, very sort of open to exchange ideas but ultimately i came away feeling very empowered and eden my son came away feeling very empowered and and so i can't can't thank you enough we had an awesome time well, well thank you so much and you showed your gratitude by by sending an amazing case of filthy products which i want to talk about a little bit later but uh yes. I, uh <laughs> I, I swear i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna re-gift a couple of the, the items. I'm keeping all the cherries. I will be super selfish with that. Um, <laughs> but you know, my friends that come to the, to town that, you know, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll show them the filthy way. So now you said 18 years you've been here. Filthy hasn't been around that long. What were you doing no. prior to working at that company? Well, I, you know, London is a really interesting city. I, grew up and am incredibly dyslexic. So I think, you know, as a young kid trying to find your sort of way in the world, uh, school was never really my cup of tea. You know, I, I would sit in those classrooms and I, I think better, like very much like Eden, my son, we both think better when we move. I have to stand up, I have to move around. My, my thoughts tend to wander, you know, when I'm sitting behind a desk for a long time. So I think in those in those early years, I was just r- really unsure of what I wanted to do. And, and um Ultimately, I I was always entrepreneurial. I was mm-hmm. a kid that was sort of starting businesses out, at, you know, in my back backyard, inviting kids over to come and play. And and uh, I set up a, a, a fairground in my in my garden. Once. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you, I'll tell you how I'll tell you how it started. So every Friday night, my mum would take a, the candy jar down from the top shelf, and there was me, and my brother Mark, who's ten months younger than me. The twins two years later. So so there was four of us under four. And every Friday, she would take the jar down. Where we were allowed to take one candy out of the jar, and I would save mine. And I would put them in the jar. And then every time I did chores, I would get, you know, back then it was penny sweets. So mm-hmm. I would go to the store and spend my pocket money on buying more penny sweets. And I would fill my jar until my jar was full. And now I'd invite all the neighborhood kids over. I would uh, charge them to come into the backyard. I would set up tins and they could throw down, throw a ball. And if they knocked down the tins, they could win these candies that I'd saved up over this, over this six months and year. And so I was always entrepreneurial and I just didn't necessarily find that school supported that kind of mindset. So to be completely honest with you, I really struggled. I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it, but I was, what dyslexia gave me was, I guess, ultimately 
the ability to just listen yeah, and watch yeah. people because you just don't get any information from books. So you become a really good listener and a really good observer because that's how you're processing all of this data. And I think from that point, I would was always able to see gaps in whether it was whether it was an opportunity or, or gaps in, in the way somebody was running a business or whatever it was, I would always focus on the space between the noise and then trying to find a way ultimately to earn a living um, started thought, man, maybe I want to be an actor, you know, maybe I want to be on stage, you know, and I think being a dyslexic kid, the idea of joining the Royal Shakespeare company was almost like climbing Everest with one leg, you know, could a dyslexic kid from where I grew up end up becoming a member of the Royal Shakespeare Company? And so I, I studied, I got into this great drama school in the UK, and my last year I got recruited and ended up, ended up touring around doing theatre for, for the next five years. Oh my gosh. You know, years ago, I was on a flight in, in one of like the Delta magazines or uh, American Airlines, whatever it was, there was an article about the number of CEOs in the world past and present with dyslexia. And we're talking about major companies like Sir yeah. Richard Branson, Tommy Hilfiger. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember who else. Uh, Walt Disney, they said was, was, um, was dyslexic as well as Steve Jobs. And yeah. The, yeah. The, the crux of the article was the idea that dyslexia, while some people would view it as, uh, as a hindrance, as you mentioned, listening to the spaces in between, and filling yeah. in the gaps, they said that the these dyslexic CEOs became really good at memorization, became really, really good at being able to recall information and presenting it in a way that non-dyslexics could not do. And they said it was because of that they could remember people's names. So they became really personable and they were able to remember all the details, you know, in for that elevator, you know, pitch. And mm. I, I think it's very interesting that you said that, like that one threw me for a loop. Like I had this plan yeah. in my head of what I wanted to talk about, but now, yeah. wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and you're right. The, the traditional education, I mean, it's very difficult for someone with dyslexia. I know that when I was a teacher, we always had to have modified plans and, and some students were allowed to have quiz questions and test questions read to them. And those kids were hyper, hyper intelligent, but they just had trouble reading in the traditional way. I mean, was that, Absolutely. was that your experience as well? Yeah. The reading aloud was sort of terrifying. And, and I would raise my hands uh, to go to the restroom, you know, three or four places before I knew I had to read. And I think, um, you know, at some point in your life, especially in those early years, you feel very self-conscious or you feel you have sort of self-worth issues, you know, I'm a, I'm a stupid kid. I, I can't read this sort of stuff. And then to your point, at some point for me, there was a shift, a fundamental shift where I realized, actually, it's a superpower and not an affliction. And I'm part of this group called Made by Dyslexia. In fact, I'm seeing Richard, uh, Sir Richard Branson yeah, um, in New York in a couple of weeks because we have the, uh, the Global Dyslexia Assembly. And also, he's opening the, the new Virgin Hotel in, in New York. So we're going to do some filthy stuff there. <laughs> and it's going to be fun. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. So, so yeah, I think I think dyslexia once you realize that it's ultimately about kindness uh, um, kindness in the infrastructure around mm -hmm. you so if you're in an environment as a small kid and one in five children have dyslexia and the environment around you isn't kind it can be somewhat terrifying and ultimately really mess with your self-esteem but i think because of those early years it gave me an incredible drive to be successful and in fact the made by dyslexia group 
which I'm doing more and more stuff with here in the States, uh, they were able to put 100,000 school teachers, New York-based school teachers, because Eric Adams, the mayor of New York, is dyslexic. So he he implemented this plan with Made by Dyslexia. 100,000 school t- teachers went through this training to help better support those one in five children with dyslexia. Now we're trying to implement the same thing here in Miami with 30,000 uh, school teachers. Because I think, you know, it's not a, you know, when I grew up, it was sort of a, a learning difficulty or, we, or mm-hmm. you were labeled in some sort of way. And now we realize actually it's just a learning difference. Some kids learn in a completely different way. And it, it doesn't mean that they're any less capable or going to be any less successful in life. It just means from that basis of how everybody receives and learns and takes information in, which is why I loved your course so much, because it was so practical. It was it was a really sort of diverse way of teaching. And so irrespective of how you learned, you were very conscious, I think, of making sure that the information transferred. And I think, you know, you were a school teacher for a long time. A lot of times it's just really being conscious of every child's way of learning and not just driving through a curriculum because there's a certain amount of subjects or syllabus to to cover in a short period of time. So I think I'm all about now sort of trying to empower kids that probably felt like me when I was little and letting them know, actually, you know, you're you're totally smart. You just learn in a different way. Mm -hmm. And let's try to find things that you may find some joy in so you could ultimately be a success for whatever that means for you. Now, in the theater that you did, I'm assuming that that meant uh, memorizing lines. Yeah, and, it did. And that it made did. you successful there. It did. I think I think ultimately what it comes down to when, when you're dyslexic, you, sorry, when, what it comes down to when you're dyslexic is that you, you don't, you, you drive through punctuation. Mm-hmm. You, you, all the words start to spin on the page. Uh, so, so basically you can't, you can't hold on to any one thought or idea. Like I would, I would read a, a sentence and the word would say that, and I would see the TH and then ultimately the rest of the word would start to spin on the page. So I would say they perhaps instead of that. And then, um, I'd go back to try to find the word that I just said aloud, but I couldn't because it was a different word. And so I think ultimately what happened as I as I went to this school called the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, I sort of got accepted to this great school. This teacher called Patsy Rodenberg, who ran the, the, the National Theatre for Voice and Speech, said, okay, mate, I know you're dyslexic, so we're going to teach you, try to give you the keys to language and understand that punctuation is really your framework of where you stop and pause complete, you know, completely if it's uh, the end of a sentence or whether you just take a breath as you continue your thought, if it's a comma. And all oh, of a sudden, okay. like it all just completely blew my mind. And suddenly I was able to just read and understand the keys to language. And then ultimately the challenge was, you know, as a dyslexic kid, as I said, could I one day be recruited by the Royal Shakespeare Company and stand up and and remember and communicate the most, sometimes some of the most complex thoughts and language ever created? and own that language and fully understand it and fully commit to it. And I think it's just that really a testament, irrespective of the dyslexia and then ultimately the Royal Shakespeare Company as as an end state, it's more about there are always going to be challenges. There are always going to be things that could derail you. And it's really about your attitude towards those things and whether you're going to be resilient enough and committed enough to try to overcome them. 
And that's always been an innate part of who I am based on the fact that as a young person, I got developed this massive chip on my shoulder that felt like he wouldn't make anything of himself because he Jeez. felt like a stupid kid sitting in those classrooms. And that ignited a fire that, that continues to burn. Wow. That is, that's powerful. I, I really appreciate you telling that story. And I think there are probably a lot of people out there that are, are somewhat ashamed and, and might not want to admit that they, they had that experience. So that that's really incredible. And, mm. and now you, you tour, much of the much of your world, the world, yeah. uh, with the company, yeah. but then you come yeah. to the United States. Were you still in theater in the entertainment industry, or did you work in the corporate world at that point? Yeah, so so I all of a sudden, I mean, you met Eden, right? He's mm-hmm. he's now nineteen, and uh, and my wife and I, my wife became pregnant with Eden, and I was like, oh my god, I'm I'm treading the boards. <laughs> I'm I'm uh, I'm earning two hundred dollars a week doing Shakespeare. And, uh, and, and how am I going to support this, this baby that's on the way? And I think what was really powerful for me was in the nine months that Kim was evolving into being a mum. I was very much mentally evolving into being a dad and what that really meant. And what it really meant for me was I wasn't going to allow somebody else to determine whether I was good enough to work or not, whether it was a casting director or, you know, or, or, or somebody that was putting me up for a job as an actor at the time. I was like, actually, I need to, I need to take the power back and and uh, be able to be an example for my son, and um, and I just didn't want to rely on anybody else to determine whether I could provide or not. That's really what it came down to at that point. And so, what I had done was uh, obviously being very entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial as a child trying to explore this way of communicating because like I said I found communicating quite difficult went through this journey to become what I felt was a really good communicator and ultimately understand what it meant to stand up in front of an audience of people and be able to tell a story and and have them understand and feel what it was that I was trying to to convey and so from that point I was like right I need to I need to do something so I had previously come to America years before and I had put a small amount of money into a friend's company, uh, and it was a pickle company here in Florida. So I said to him, I called him up and I said, "Hey, mate, how's our how's our company doing? I've got a baby on the way, and uh, and how are we doing?" And he said, "It's doing really badly." Which oh, great! Kind of not what you want to hear when you when you have a baby on the way, right? So I said to my wife, uh, "My last play had finished in January. Eden was born in the February," and I said. How do you feel about how do you feel about coming to America and seeing if we can turn this company around? And um, Kim, my wife, who who loves me and uh, and I think has just always been just so incredibly supportive, she uh, she said, "Yeah, let's let's try it for six months. Let's see, see, see if we like it." So we flew to here in Miami when Eden was five months old. We left in in the in the August. And um, I walked into this pickle company, which was a complete disaster, a disaster in the sense that they they had no processes. But more importantly, there was no joy there. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such a an underconsidered part of the formula that makes anything successful. People have to want to be there. They have to want to be committed to the cause as a group. You have to be clear about what the mission is ultimately and what everybody's role within that is. And that irrespective of what, level somebody is or what rank somebody has everybody is critical to the group as a whole being able to to deliver something special and so i just asked as i said like a, 
I mentioned before, I was super curious, why do you do that like that? And then I would listen to people, or I'd watch people, observe people. And we just totally restructured the process of producing pickles. We built solid relationships with people that perhaps based on inconsistency in the past, they the company had lost their trust or their respect. And I said, listen, I give you my word, it will always be consistent, we'll never let you down. And I think that's been the one thing throughout everything that I've done and luckily enough or been fortunate enough to be a part of is if I look, I'm, I'm old school in that sense. If mm -hmm. you look somebody in the face and you shake their hand and you say, I won't let you down, then you will never let them down. It's not about excuses. It's always about finding a solution to, to honor that commitment that you made. And so suddenly the, the food distributors or the restaurant groups or people that were, you know, looking to buy products from us started to trust us again and started to give us more opportunities. And we turned that company around within six months from being non-profitable to being fairly profitable. And then I moved into another part of the business, which was the meat, the meat side of the company. Some of the owners also owned um, a meat business. Mm -hmm. and they said, wow, you've done a really good job with the pickle company. Why don't you come across to the meat business, which is, which is how I sort of really learned so much so much about business from from the guys in that company not just about how to build a good business but what not to do and uh, it was a, a huge school as i said i'm a practical human being and so i couldn't learn sitting behind a desk mm -hmm. but i could sit in an office i could i could go into the warehouse i could go into the production facility i could meet uh, the sales teams i could go and speak to the distributor and i would just be a sponge absorbing all of it because ultimately you go to places and saying there's an opportunity for me to learn and there's an opportunity for me to be better than i was yesterday so rather than coming in and trying to solve everything why don't i just listen to everybody first why do you do that like that or how long have you been doing that or or what are your challenges and then just digesting as much and as much as you can and then trying to make a suggestion from an informed position as opposed to trying to make change from a place of ego you know, it's interesting that you you talk about the the sense the the feeling that you had when you walked into that pickle business and you you felt like there wasn't a culture, right? Like you could tell yeah. that the employees were probably being berated by the higher ups about the profit, mm. right? And and yeah. produce and produce yeah. these products and and if you focus primarily on product and profit and you don't think about the people, right? I mean, there's yes. a lot of there are a lot of P's in. I guess you can say in the pickle business, but in any business. Yeah. And if you if you don't take care of people, if you don't establish a true company culture where people understand, like it is okay to communicate, just do so respectfully. It is okay to to you know speak honestly about something, even if it's going to hurt people's feelings. I mean, you got to be you got to have that that ability, or else you're going to feel like you're walking on eggshells. And it's obvious when you walk into some companies that there isn't a a well known and a universally understood culture where mm people will say, listen, we always protect our brand. You know, we, if that means pulling the guy off the assembly line who might've had a rough night and saying, Hey, go home. I know you have trouble yes, at home. Exactly. Take care of business. Cause you know what? You're protecting the brand. Cause that guy might do something in the assembly that will hurt the brand later on, you know, Absolutely. but if people Absolutely. don't understand those basic core values broken down into actionable words, then you don't have that culture. And it's, it's wild that you could, you can pick up on that so quickly and that's what turned your business around, which just shows how powerful and important those words are. 
so now, <laughs> I mean, we could talk forever about, about yeah. business. Let's get right up to the filthy moment. So yes, pickles, meat. When did you say, Hey, uh, I got another idea. Um, because this, this is what I'm, I'm fascinated by, by your, the way that you sold them and, and the process that you went through to, to find the best out there. Like if people are listening that are thinking about starting a business, like I think your model is such a, a good one to follow. So can you kind of go into that moment where you're like, Hey, we're, we're, we're turning things around. We're, we're building this business. We're making it better. People are enjoying working here. And by the way, I want to do this with alcohol. <laughs> like, yes. Can you yes. go into that? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. I think, well, ultimately the meat company was a highly commoditized business, right? It was all about one cent a pound and buying things on the market. And, and what I realized was it was a very specific business. The one that I didn't particularly find joy in, I would want to bring joy to it, but I just didn't want to be in the commodity business. And as I said earlier, I, I always love the space between the noise. That's the way that I think. So 2006, I'm in an airport, and this was way before sort of iPhones and people were sitting, you know, staring at screens all the time. So you'd sort of wander around back then, and, and there were magazine stores, and you would go in and, and pick up books off the shelf or read magazines before your flight. And there was a book on the shelf called Blue Ocean Strategy. And it said Harvard Business School. And I was like, wow, that sounds that sounds interesting. Let me look at the back cover. And as I said, being dyslexic, um, getting the keys to language through Patsy and, and the Royal Shakespeare Company, I thought, let me pick it up and just read a few pages. The premise of a blue ocean strategy is there are two types of businesses in the world, red ocean and blue ocean. And 99% of the businesses are red ocean, which essentially means you have a business, I have a business, we're competitors, we both have headquarters, we both have territories and we try to kill each other, whether it's putting our stuff on sale, whether it's trying to communicate our competitive advantage against you or your enemy. Mm -hmm. And ultimately you beat each other up and the ocean turns red with blood. This is competitive business space. So it was like a red ocean, 99% of the businesses. Mm -hmm. The example they used was blue ocean, which is people didn't want to go to the circus anymore because they didn't want to see the animals. Theater appealed to a sort of so social economic crowd uh, it wasn't really accessible to all people and then this french canadian genius looked at it and said what if i combined circus and theater and created a billion dollar blue ocean strategy business that had no competition and cirque du soleil was born wow and and the idea for me was wow how do i create a business having been in the meat space which is highly commoditized highly competitive everybody beating everybody up very red ocean finding a blue ocean strategy business and you know like you i love i love bars i love bartenders because ultimately those guys show love through service right you mm -hmm. go in they want to take care of you how are you doing they uh they make you a nice drink it's just a, a moment to pause so i was going into bars we had scaled the meat business sold the meat business and i was sort of sitting there in an airport and and uh sort of had this epiphany i want to find a blue ocean strategy business I was sitting in bars over the next few months and I was watching this huge renaissance happening in cocktails. People were moving towards fresh ingredients, fresh juices, fresh herbs behind the bar, you know, wider expressions of whiskey. And there was all of this incredible stuff happening. But then garnishes were still coming in these big gallons of oily, salty uh, olives. The, the brine had turned rancid before anybody went through them. The cherries were really awful. They were, they were fluorescent. And I just looked at it and I said, wow, there's, there's this 
incredible thing happening in hospitality. I love the people in the space. They show love through service. It's a nice, seems like it's a nice area to sort of be involved in. And there's this massive business over here that has nobody looking at it. And there's really no love in it. So that began the journey where I started to explore what is it about garnishes? What's the size of the market? And it ended up being a $12 billion market with no brand in the space. So my brother <laughs> was coming back from Iraq. He was a documentarian that was embedded with a, a force recon unit. He was part of a seven-man team at the time. And he was transitioning, having been on the front line in Iraq for for two and a half years. And um, and had landed back in Florida. I was having this whole epiphany about maybe there's this huge business opportunity in a, in a category that has no love. We were sitting in my car and I pitched him the idea for Filthy. This was 2006. And I said to him, you know, this is what I want to do. And he said, you know, I've jumped out of airplanes 2,000 times. He actually has broken world records cave diving. He'd been in Iraq and Afghanistan for the last two and a half years. And he said to me, you want to start a cocktail garnish company? And I said, yeah, I do, actually. And he said, I thought I was bloody crazy. Let's do it. <laughs> It's Amber L here, and I wanted to tell you about our one of our partners. It's Athletic Greens, um, but more specifically, I wanted to tell you about AG1 by Athletic Greens. And if you're familiar with my lifestyle at all, or follow me in any capacity, you know that I have really taken ownership of my health and wellness over the last year. And I hold myself to new standards, and I've implemented some really strict disciplines that have extremely increase my overall wellness and vitality. And that's so important to me as a mom, but also for someone who takes their own um, self-defense and their own empowerment really seriously. And so one place where I feel like we all fall short is trying to keep up with our supplement routine. And AG1 is a life hack of sorts. And I love life hacks. And it's an all-in-one formula that makes it easy um, for me to cover my nutritional bases every day. One scoop is packed with 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food source ingredients. And not just of basic average quality, but of really great quality. That's very important to me because of the bioavailability and the way that my body utilizes it. And so you get those benefits like gut and mood support and boosted energy and healthy looking skin, hair, and nails. And we all want that. So if you're looking for an easier way to take your supplements and you want to give them a try, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. So you can go to athleticgreens.com backslash fieldcraft to check them out. That's athleticgreens.com backslash fieldcraft. Now, while I'm here with you, I wanted to tell you about Program 62. This is my baby. Round two of program 62 starts April 18th. This is an amazing program. It is a 12 week long online virtual course where you hang out with us live once a week and we go over one subject matter topic every week and we bring in experts from in-house on that topic. So we cover things like self-defense to homesteading and food preservation like canning and food storage all the way down to things like survival and bushcraft and mobility and emergency planning and medical planning and medical training and all in ways in which you can be empowered whether you are a family of six 
or you are single living in a one-room apartment or you are a couple and you have fur puppies, fur babies, whatever your life looks like, this program was built to help get you from a starting point of not knowing how to fully build out and safeguard yourself in every foundational capacity when it comes to your preparedness and get you to a place where you feel very confident in 12 weeks. I, um, I have taken so much pride in building out this course. It is very thorough and I really hope you guys look into joining us for round two. We would love to have you. I also want to tell you about the Resilience Rendezvous coming up on April 28th to May 1st in Heber City, Utah. Here you will be joined by some of our Fieldcraft team and other experts in the resilience field like Brian Peters, where you will learn all about how to build your own capabilities and resilience by pushing yourself to the limit and really learning what you're capable of, as well as some tips and tricks to make it a bit easier to up-level yourself in that capacity. And then I also want to tell you about a women's warrior hunt retreat. And it's combined with a 3D archery shoot over in California, right outside of San Diego. This will be May 31st to June 4th. This will be my second time attending this retreat. And I will be there with other team members where we will be outlining how your survival and your preparedness and self-reliance make you so much more capable and ready to get out there this hunting season. It's going to be amazing and I can't wait to meet all of you guys. So if any of those things sound good to you and you feel called to really push yourself this year, I highly suggest you come out and meet us. This is what we love to do, is to train with you guys. So check out our website so you can read more about it and I hope you guys enjoy the rest of the podcast. Hey, what's going on, guys? Ketone IQ. Yeah, this is a mid-roll break. We're talking about Ketone IQ, a product I've been using for years now. It's made by HVMN. And it's a product that I've been using because I do have traumatic brain injury. I also have a little bit of fogginess. But it could benefit everybody because it gives you the same clarity you would get when you're in ketosis. That ketone ester puts you in that ketosis state of mental clarity and it's like caffeine without the jitters i love it so if you're interested in ketone iq um go ahead and go to hvmn that's hotelvictormn.com that's hotelvictormikenovember hvmn.com and use fieldcraft one word to save 15 percent again go to hvmn.com and save 15 percent off with the code Fieldcraft. Now back to the podcast. So um, we thought it was going to take us three or four months, but there are 700 varieties of olives on the planet. And he and I spent the next two years looking at 230 varieties of olives. Oh my gosh. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I mean, we could really geek out, I'm sure, on the the varieties of olives and the varieties of cherries and whatnot. You ultimately make the decision. And I, I've got one of your containers of, of cherries right here. I, I'm not drinking this morning. I, I contemplated no. that, but we're also doing a blood drive later and I'm giving blood. Yes. And, you know, I, while I, it's important to bleed, you don't want to bleed a lot by thinning out your blood. So, um, no, no. 
So you you settled on the wild Italian, is it Amarena or Amarena? Yeah, Amarena cherry. I think what I would say is, and, and what I think would be valuable to your audience, whether mm-hmm. whether it was the example of, you know, getting one candy a week from my mom and saving my pocket money to to fill the jar up over a long period of time. There's an example, even at a very early age of patience. And when Mark and I started to look at olives and then cherries at the time, we didn't stop at, you know, three varietals. We didn't go and visit one family. There was a journey that happened, which was if we're going to be involved in it and our name's going to be on it, it has to have a really deeply rooted foundation that, that that's connected to authenticity and us really understanding the market. And that could have taken us, you know, 10 years. Mm-hmm. It took us two years. So I think a lot of times now people want to do things where they get things very quickly. And to your point earlier, they're doing it for the end result, right? right. I want to make money. But I think the reality is if you put your heart and soul into something, if you see an opportunity and you really fully commit to it and understand that it's going to take time for you to be able to develop something significant, then then anything is possible. And I think, as I said, we patience is, has to be a massive part of building any sort of business. You have to be clear that it's going to take time because with all of your effort and all of your energy, the market has to decide whether you're worthy or not. And you have to give them a reason to, to, to discover you and, and love you. In this, in this process of selecting all the cherries, I know you and your brother have two palettes. Did you yes. do any like blind taste tests with people where you said, what do you think of this one? What do you think of that one? I mean, was there, what was the experimentation process like? Yeah, I, what I would say is it's, it's a very specific thing, right? I always remember this quote from Henry Ford, which was, if I would have given people what they wanted, I'd have made a faster horse, you know? And I think, <laughs> in a, right, in a way, you can spend a huge amount of time going to the market, but human beings, nobody really, nobody really knows. At, at the end of the day, we all jump and build our wings on the way down type people. And what we did was we trusted each other and we trusted that ultimately finding the right partners that were growing olives and and were willing to naturally cure them for four months instead of four days with chemicals. And that's what we were going to do. And nobody in the world was doing that and we were going to do that. And if it was going to be about cherries, what was the way everybody used to do it? Well, we used to cook them for 10 days in these beautiful copper pots, but now everybody uses stainless steel. But but all the Italian pastry chefs, they all use copper to cook. Why? Oh, it's a great tra- – it transfers heat in a great way. It maintains the complexity inside the fruit. It doesn't burn sugar. Oh, why, why don't we cook cherries in copper? Oh, nobody does that anymore. Well, why don't we try it? And I think where we were fortunate was people took a shot on us. It's not like we could go to them as a big American company and say, we're going to buy, you know, 50 containers of olives or 100 containers of cherries. We started out with four barrels of olives. We came back to America with just four barrels of naturally cured olives. And then we built the business for the next three years. Another example of patience and resilience for three years. That's a thousand days out of the back of my wife's car here in Florida and Mark going around on subway trains in New York, going from bar to bar and delivering out of the backpack. So I think another example of just saying, like, we really believe that this could be a global business. There's a huge opportunity in the space, but we didn't have a lot of money. We weren't able to, you know, we didn't want to go to investors. 
we just said let's just let's just put love and resilience into this and prove to the market ultimately in our world at the beginning it was bartenders that we're here to stay we're going to do what we say we're going to do that we believe our product is better than anything they're getting right now and we wanted to be their partner in giving their guests a better experience you know and they you, trusted us and we did it that way you uh you said you know you didn't have a lot of money and that was going to be my next question was about the investment that you put in there and i think it's interesting when you see certain companies that they operate on the premise that even if they have money, they operate on the premise like we're going to be very frugal with our decisions. Mm. But then you see certain companies that have a lot of money and they, they're very wasteful and they, they make some foolish marketing decisions or yeah. they spend their money incorrectly. I mean, money is going to drive the business at the end of the day. It's, it's about the dollar. Yeah. When did you know, like, wow, we're, we're doing something like when did it, it finally hit? You know, everyone frames that first dollar that they make in a business and they're proud of it. Like when was that first big paycheck where you're like, wow, oh my gosh. Like you, you had one of those moments where you went home and you hugged your wife a little tighter, like honey. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in those early days, when you're building a business, the pain has to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's ultimately about your own personal pain threshold. And then the pain threshold of the people that really love you. And I think I was incredibly lucky that my wife, Kim, is so strong and really loves me. So when our kids were the kids that were wearing like the the, the worst sneakers or had, mm -hmm. had shorts that were falling off of them, she wasn't looking at me like I, I, I was a failure. She was looking at me like, I know we're on this journey. We're going to get through this together and I've got you. And it's about really having a partner in that sense, because if you're an entrepreneur, you know, there's this expression, which is to better understand entrepreneurs, you have to study juvenile delinquents, <laughs> right? We like to break stuff. We just do. And then we want to rebuild it in a way. If we think it's not good in the first place, like garnishes are a really poor quality. Okay, let's break it. Let's smash it. And then let's rebuild it. And so we had to have, you know, I had to have a, a support system that allowed me to go and be a lunatic and, and us to eat baked beans out of the tin for a while and not feel like I was a failure. And so what I would say is at the beginning, it's about everybody's ability to just handle the pain because it's going to go somewhere and that can't break you. And at the same time, you sort of lose. I lost, I felt like I had lost all ego. You know, I had this discussion last week, you know, so obviously with Mike and uh, Andy Stumpf and Andy was talking about ego. And I really felt like at that point I had lost my ego. I was, you know, from the pickle company, I was in the garbage. I was leading by example. I was, I was in the garbage. I'd wash up and I'd, and I'd go and make sales. I, when I was, you know, building the business out the back of Kim's car with filthy, I would get phone calls from bartenders at two o'clock in the morning that they'd run out of olives. And I was making deliveries out the back of her car. So I'd make deliveries, you know, all day, all night. In the morning, we'd take the seats out of the car, but, you know, so I could make deliveries after Kim dropped the kids to school. And then we'd put the seats back in the car so she could go pick them up. And then we'd take the seats out again so that I can make deliveries at night. And I think ultimately it's why are you doing this? And if you're doing it to get something else, you can forget about it. Do it to do it. Do it to 100% commit to doing it. Find joy in every single part of it. Be positive. Negativity is useless, mm -hmm. right? So just find positivity in all of it and say, I'm doing it. And you know what? If you're doing it right and you're doing it with dignity and you're doing it with integrity, 
and you really believe in what you're doing, people will notice. The question is, do they notice quick enough for you to be able to sustain your life? Because if it takes a long time to happen and you have bills to pay and you have other expenses, you might feel like the pain is not worth it. But it was lucky for us, we were able to sustain. I mean, we lived a really frugal life for a while. Why? Because yeah, we could have raised money, but then what happens? You give away half your company. For what? For some person that came in at an early stage, unless that partner is really going to bring something beyond the money or really trust in you to run the business, why do you want to why do you want to even have that consideration? So we just bootstrapped it for as long as we possibly could. You know, something I just wrapped up reading a book called Leading with Honor. <clears throat> it's mm. uh, it's by a POW of Vietnam who was basically at the Hanoi Hilton with, you know, John McCain. And I mean, mm. he he explains how the expression that that's used to describe like when the the jail keepers would would beat them he said you have to lean into that pain and take it yes, you know and 100 and it's interesting when you're I, i'm listening to you talking about do everything with integrity do everything with, with honor do everything to the point where you're positive like you have to lean into that pain even though it's going to hurt yeah i mean your message that you just provided in that response could be taken word for word out of that leading mm. with honor book and the message wow. is the same and it's universal um, yes you know absolutely I don't believe, you know, there's this whole thing about um, people are just trying to be happy, mm-hmm. you know, and, and if I think about it, and if I'm completely honest about it, I am not a happy human. I don't believe in that, if I'm honest about it. I think happiness is a little bit like a rainbow, you know, light has to hit something at a certain point, and all these things have to happen, and then suddenly there's, there's happiness. So what I can tell you with 100% certainty is I'm such a positive human, and and because I can actually control that. I can't control happiness. Are you happy? Are you not happy? There's all these things that have to happen, right, to make people happy. And so I'm sort of removed that from part of my thinking. Maybe there's times where, as a result, people think of me as being a very happy person. I'm actually a very positive person. Mm-hmm. But the more and the stronger the negative, the polarity of that means the more and the stronger I am positive. I'm actively positive. So like in COVID, when the hospitality industry slows completely slows down because bars and restaurants are closed. We just put all out of that energy and found it as to your point, leaned into that pain mm-hmm. and really found out who everybody was around us. Cause it's easy to be who you want to be when the sun's shining. Right. But when it's raining outside or pissing down, you really find out who everybody is. Right. So yeah. we just leaned in and we just created so much energy around being positive. And in a moment where we could have been negative, or been drawn down into these are the reasons this is happening and this is happening. I can't do this because this is happening. And we were like, no, we just don't subscribe to that. We're going to find a way to push the worse it gets, the more positive we have to be. And so what I would say is as a, as a, as a leader in this business or, or in anything, there's always the negative, the stronger the, mm-hmm. the negative, it gives you an amazing opportunity to push so hard against that and and be so positive and move your business your family your life your choices just forward yeah and that's i think a a common message we always say that there has the pendulum has to swing the other way at some point and you know if you know someone who is incredibly positive always happy maybe that's because they're hiding something that is Mm. negative in their life you know and definitely you know uh, i can say that it's there's a concept called 
uh, work emotion, right? Like you mm-hmm. are like, if, if something terrible is happening in your life, you sometimes just have to put on that work face and go in yeah. and not let your personal life get into the, the, the professional life. And, you know, sometimes, I mean, your, your life could be falling apart, but you just got to maintain that, that positivity. So I understand mm-hmm. that perspective. And I'm sure during COVID, people wanted to go out to the bars. And I know during COVID there were studies that said that people were drinking more than ever. And there was a rise of, uh, what did one of my buddy Dave from uh, the high school, he used to trade beer through the mail, Mm. but they had Mm. a hard time shipping beer. So they would call it artisanal craft or something like that. And they found (laughs) a way, like during COVID people found a way. Um, Did you notice that your business went through the roof uh, for people during COVID, like wanting to purchase garnishes and things like that as a way of coping with what the world was going through? Yeah, I think I think what happened was people became really curious. Maybe they couldn't go to their, their favorite bar or to see their favorite bartender, but they loved drinking, you said before, an old fashioned. So before, maybe they would rely on that bartender to make it or they would have some some rudimentary understanding of how to put it together. And suddenly, because of YouTube and during that period of time, they were being really curious, exploring all of these videos, watching these great bartenders, um, learning about all these different expressions of whiskey and the complexity of it and and how ice really impacts the drink and how to make ice that was really clear at home. And, and we were just part of that movement of people just being kind to themselves, I think. You know, at that time, maybe people couldn't go out and and treat themselves to big things, but they wanted to just be kind to themselves and give themselves something small and interesting. And and that may have come in in the form of a a lovely cocktail at the end of the (laughs) evening. And so so we just became part of that. And I think our business shifted massively from being bar-focused to being retail and direct-to-consumer focused. And now after COVID, so many more people are, f- are familiar with with us. I mean, when I Eden and I left Aberdeen mm-hmm. uh, after your after the course, you know, we were really pumped up. When we were driving to the airport, we were driving to rally, and we pulled off on the side of the road and we saw a restaurant group that we recognised, and and we sort of pulled in and sat down and and ordered some food, and and the the waitress was very nice, and and at the end of the meal, I sort of paid and um, you know put down my card, and she said. Filthy food. Can I? Can I ask? Do you <laughs> do you make garnishes? And I and and I was like, yeah. And she said, oh, um, what do you do at the company? I said, actually, I you know I I started the company, and she completely lost it in such a positive way. She, we were doing selfies. She called her husband. I like sent them a whole package afterwards. And I think what's so amazing is, like, people may not always notice what we do in bars and restaurants, but I believe fundamentally they feel it. They feel what we do because we Mm -hmm. just put so much love into it. And I think now, because of COVID, we had so many more people at retail or at home experiencing our products and loving it. But now it's sort of become, as I said, back just a holistically much more more well-rounded, much better business. Where did the name Filthy come from? So my brother, Mark, as I mentioned, Mark is only 10 months younger than me. And then there were twins two and a half years later. So there was four of us under four, right? There was, we were really uh, all close in age. So Mark and I always sort of left our own devices and and were playing outside and just getting covered in mud all the time as little boys and finding a huge amount of joy in it. And my mom was always like, look at you, you're bloody filthy. The pair of you, you're bloody filthy. We're just about to go out and you're filthy, you're filthy. So for me, filthy is really like the way that we look at life. 
don't dip your toe in or get a little bit dirty, get filthy in everything because it's where the joy is, right? Commit fully to that experience. And so I think filthy for me is more of a philosophy about going all in on everything you do as opposed to uh, anything else. So that's why we call filthy because my mom used to call my brother and I that all the time. Oh, all I, the time. I love that. Yeah, you. that was the, the type of life where you're uh, – you're you're playing in the dirt but it was always good dirt you know oh, like you didn't awesome. like kids now are, are skeeved out sometimes by dirt but back in the day yeah. it was like you got your your jeans ripped and you got dirt under your fingernails yeah. and that's awesome that, uh, and i think that was such a big thing around covid you know everybody was sterilizing a lot of stuff in mm-hmm. a lot of, you know areas and and kids immunities were just being suppressed because everything they weren't being exposed to all of that all of that stuff so we were always sort of like sending the kids outside and you know, trying to keep their immunity healthy during that period. I'm looking, I'm looking on your, on your site right now. I just pulled it up. Um, yeah. all, all the different products that you have, right? Like blue cheese, olives, filthy pickle, filthy pepper, pimento pitted, uh, the different cherries, the mixers. Uh, and then you have all these different kits. I mean, is there one product that you're like, this is my favorite thing we make. This is the star. You know, it's an interesting one. I'm always, you know, uh, have this fondness to the filthy pickle because in a way that's where it started this little pickle inside of an olive because i always felt at the beginning you know how does a small brand connect with consumers and and if you look at martinis as an example Mm -hmm. you don't know whether it's vodka or gin in that glass and you certainly don't know what brand it is especially when they move it away from the bar but i always felt with the filthy pickle which is this little pickle and olive if you put that in a martini Anywhere you moved in the bar, you would know it was filthy, irrespective of whether our jar was there or whether you, you knew it was our product. You knew the pickle and the olive was filthy, and I could build a brand without having packaging or anything around. It was something that was distinctly us. So I always felt like the filthy pickle was really where it all started for me, as opposed to just doing olives or something that people wouldn't recognize as being filthy when it was away from the package. So that was a big thing for me. And then, obviously, the black cherries are have been such a gateway into um, such a huge gateway into everything that we do. You know, whiskey's gone through this incredible explosion over the last 10 years. It used mm-hmm. to take up six feet right in the liquor store. And now it's 60 feet mm-hmm. with people doing all of these. Oh, I'm sending you, I'm sending you some incredible uh, whiskey. Actually, oh, I love uh, from a mate of mine. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to tell you anything about it, but you'll, when you, you're going to love it, I think, but there's just all these great distillers doing all this, really interesting stuff and so the black cherry was our way to be part of those incredible old fashions of manhattan's but now i think we're we're really focused for the mixes bloody mary and margarita mix um just because they're all natural and they taste like you just made them from scratch where the market as we said before blue ocean red ocean the market in that space was full of brands with tons of preservatives and additives and allergens and all sorts of crap in them basically and we were like if we're going to put something out into the world, it's got to be beautiful. And so amazing Bloody Mary makes fresh ingredients. Margarita mix is, is fresh lime juice and, and organic agave from Jalisco in Mexico to make this incredible margarita. And we're putting them, you know, you've seen them in, in the most sustainable pouches on, mm-hmm. the, on the planet. They're really adventure ready, right? You can literally throw them in a cooler or throw them in a backpack. And it's not like carrying bottles around with you. They're these little pouches. They fold up into nothing. And then you can fill them with water afterwards if you need to. You know, I was just going to say that. They're just great. 
Yeah, the, uh, the for anyone listening who hasn't seen them, they're about the size of a Capri Sun packet. But instead of puncturing through that little foil top or going through the bottom like a bunch of us lazy kids would back in the day, uh, there's a there's a screw top. So it is reusable and there's actually a hole punched in it. So you can kind of like carabiner it to the outside of your pack if you want to. Yeah, um, which exactly. is awesome. Um, have you ever seen the, the artwork of Michael Goddard? He does a lot of like cherries and olives. And- I have. Yeah, I have seen Goddard. I remember uh, years ago, I think he's Las Vegas based. And, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and we have some mutual friends and, and he did all of these incredible scenes, right? Where olives were replacing people in, in like uh, cityscapes and in bars and restaurants. It was just olives instead of people. And he did some great stuff. Yeah. He's, he's super cool. Yeah. There, there's one I'm trying to remember. It was, uh, it was called like diver down where it was like an olive with like a diver's flag. And I was like, I need to get one of those. (laughs) Like, like, like I didn't, I never really got into a lot of the modern art and, you know, I took the very foundational course as an undergrad that I had to for my, my degree, um, just to kind of get that, you know, liberal arts, you know, uh, you know, the course is under my belt and just out of the way. But I remember seeing that and I was like, man, I don't look at a lot of art. I don't collect art, but I was like, that is just cool. It's just, there's just something yeah. funky about it. You know, with these, you know, these olives doing little people things and yeah. it's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, it's interesting yeah. how things just impact us or connect with us emotionally. And there's no reason or rhyme why you just saw that and you felt something from it. Exactly. Exactly. Right. You know, I mean, if uh, people would think like Ansel Adams for me, right? Like all black and white photos yeah. of the, of the landscape and, and don't get me wrong. I, I love that type of thing, but I don't have any real art up in my, my place, you know, but there's, there's always room for, you know, something. If I see something in my travels, like, oh, you know, here's an American flag made with old recycled barn wood or something like that. Now we were talking not to change the subject, but we were talking yeah. about some of the products and you were like, oh, we were trying at one point to do a uh, individually wrapped cherries. Like what's what's next without giving away anything to let someone steal your idea? Yeah, like, yeah. What, what's what's next that you're willing to talk about? Well, I think I think some of the big stuff that's happening for everybody in consumer packaged goods is it's not necessarily about new products. It is about new ways to deliver them to the market. So I think to your point, the cherries now come in these individually packed cherries, right? Originally, that was we it came from a partnership we have with Delta Airlines, where they said we want you to solve this problem. We want to carry your your products globally, but we don't want to carry jars. They they break, they produce waste. Um, we have to throw out you know what's left at the end of the flights. So if you can find a way to serve cherries or olives with minimal weight, minimal waste, and they're 100% recyclable, we'll bring them on board. So we sort of invented this individually packed machine and it took you know nine months to make and it arrived here like three weeks before covid and then delta were like sorry guys we're not we're not flying and we have this amazing relationship with them now where they now use the mixers but at the time it was like okay and but then we sort of redirected that energy and started to partner with the liquor brands and use those little single we call them filthy singles um, around the tops of bottles right so so we found a way to move forward so what i would say is packaging is a massive part of everybody's consideration and i'll give you an example for filthy to receive like one truckload of these pouches to fill with our bloody mary or margarita mix or olive brine would be the same as another company receiving 35 truckloads of plastic or glass bottles so just from a from a waste standpoint from a consumption standpoint it's just it's just a much better solution so what i would say is there's garnishes for us and mixers 
to really be part of the drinks that people love. So I don't think we'll do anything super esoteric. You know, we love the martinis and Bloody Mary's margaritas and obviously whiskey cocktails. So I don't know if it's going to be that, but what I would love to do is explore collaborations with people that I really like. So, you know, maybe we'll do, we should chat about doing something um, around the pouches where we do something specific with Fieldcraft and we create something amazing, right? Where we, we do something unique in a package that's going to work for that community around drinks that people in that community really love to consume while they're on the road. So I think it's where I'm, my curiosity right now is, is not necessarily in launching loads of new products, but finding ways to um, do limited edition or regional or seasonal versions of what we do with people that we like. I love I love collaboration and I love to sort of listen to what communities need or what people are interested in and seeing if we could just be part of that experience. So I think that's where all the focus is right now. Wow. Uh, well, I'll just say this before I get back to being serious. If Mike, if you're listening to this podcast, if I'm not in on that collaborative process as one of the folks <laughs> working with Filthy, then I'm quitting this job because, uh, oh yeah, I, I don't want to go yeah. into it. But, uh, we could just do stuff that's super cool, right? I agree. Just do it with your mates and, and see if the world likes it. Well, I like, I like the idea that you brought up where you said, you know, it's very difficult to keep citrus for a long period yeah. of time, but if you just get the oil, you can still do something that's old-fashioned-esque exactly. out in the field. I was like, genius. So yeah, genius. exactly, exactly. You know, and think of the bars and restaurants. You know, a lot of the times they're buying tons of oranges. Mm -hmm. They're taking out off the peel. They're sort of extracting the or expressing the oil from it to give you that aromatic when you lift your old fashioned to your nose or to your mouth. But then they're throwing out the rest of the orange. I know it's crazy. So I think in a way, right? There's so many cool things that could be doing. Uh, people could be doing, and and I think, as I said, you have to know at the beginning what success looks like. So I think for filthy, it was always about trying to let me elaborate on that for a second mm -hmm. yeah success is unique for everybody and and it, it, it's no judgment some people want to have a really powerful local business that appeals to the community around them and, and then to be respected and contribute towards their community local business some people want to have a regional business right i can go all the way in my region before i run into somebody else that's doing something similar to me where i I have to spend all my money fighting them as opposed to building my business. So I'm just going to stay as a regional business. Other people say, you know what? There's an opportunity for me to take this thing national. I'm really credible in the space, whether it's a service or a product. I've got some really unique differentiators between what I'm doing and everybody else's. I'm going to take this business national. With Filthy, it was always going to be a global business. Always. There's a massive opportunity for us. I built and scaled a national business, but it was really always an opportunity to be global, but it may not happen in my lifetime. That's mm -hmm. the thing. I, I heard this thing recently, which was, you know, generosity and optimism is an old man that plants the seeds of a tree whose branches he knows he may never feel the shade of. I'm not doing this to get anything. I'm just doing it. And it may be that Eden ends up, you know, long after I'm dust taking filthy global. But the idea of having something and really understanding at the beginning what a success looked like and putting that end state out there. And just to your point, you taught me this last week or two weeks ago, you know, within that structure, you have your current state, you have the end state, you have your means and your ways to get there. And are you applying the right resources and picking the right routes to get ultimately where you need to go? And the journey for me will take me the rest of my life. 
and we still may not be a global business at that point, but I'm going to do my best or live every breath that I have to try to get us there. Man, I, I don't know if I could have wrapped up the podcast with anything better than that last comment that you had. I don't even want to add to it. I just want to ask, where can people find you? They can find uh, me on Instagram at Filthy Daniel. Filthy Food is filthyfood.com. Uh, normally, if, if you're in the bar or restaurant industry, you can go to liquor distributors and they may be carrying us to service your bars and restaurants, or you can find us on Amazon or in your local retail store. And if you like the idea of Filthy and you go to your local retailer and you say, hey, do you carry Filthy? And they don't, just tell them they should bring it in. <laughs> they, should, right. they should stock better garnishes and mixes and, and then maybe they will. Unbelievable. Yeah, it's a, it's a great product, guys. You know, Jerry, who is basically my my green hornet, and I have to be Cato because I'm the Asian one. Uh, Jerry, who's <laughs> one of my, my co-workers here, he and I, we tapped into the Filthy Cherries for the first time a couple weeks ago uh, after the course that Daniel was on. And we're like, these are incredible. And Jerry and I both commented on the little skewers that you have. Those are borderline yes. weapons. They're amazing. Yes, they um, are. Exactly. Yeah, we uh, we had a great time with that. So, you know, I will, awesome. I'll, I'll thank you and I'll credit you for, um, you know, the state of my liver after I consume all those cherries. But I mean, they are, they're, they're amazing. They really are. And I'm looking forward to, to hosting events. And next time I go out and I see, you know, Mike and the crew, we're going out to Montana Knife Company in a couple of weeks. Amazing. I'm going to, I'm going to stop by there. I'll bring some of the cherries with me and be like, you guys have to try this. Just trust oh, me on brilliant. this one, you know? So uh, I think you're doing it right. I, I can't thank you enough for, for being on the podcast and for, you know, starting this friendship. And I, I love what you're doing. And it was a pleasure having you in the course. And I appreciate everything that you've done for us. Uh, it's such a, can I say something? It's such a pleasure for me as well. You know, I'm 50 now. And so it's rarely you meet people that you ultimately want to hang out with at this stage. You know, you have your mates and you've got your communities and, and all of those types of things. And I just, I'm so grateful for, first of all, I have to say, it, you know, aloud, just the kindness you showed to my son and, and to me when we were on the course and it was so empowering for us and, and um, look forward to continuing the friendship and, and thank you again for all of the positivity and giving me the opportunity to tell the story today. I look forward to seeing you in person soon. Definitely. I'll be down to Miami at some point. I would love to, to utilize that facility, facility, yeah. facility uh, as Definitely. you, uh, you uh, allow, that. allowed us to. So I'll check it out at some point and maybe we'll do some awesome. land and med down there. But uh, awesome. guys, Thanks, yeah, thank you so much. And guys, thank you for listening to the Fieldcraft Survival podcast. Uh, we always enjoy educating, equipping and empowering you until the next time. Here we go.